Escape from Plan A. Hey everyone, this is your host today, Diana, and I'm here with Josh from FAIR. Uh, how are you doing, Josh? Do you want to like intro yourself a little bit? Okay, sure, no problem. My name is Josh, and I'm a, currently a freelancer, and I currently write a lot for Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting. I think one of the more interesting times about 2020 is just, besides the whole pandemic, is writing about how media coverage is working. It's a little surprising because there's a lot of what I would call uh, distortions and misrepresentations of what actually went, went out in China, but we could talk more about that further on. What do you mean by surprising? I guess if listeners or viewers were um, tracking media coverage of COVID from the very beginning, uh, they might have been fed something like uh, China was either hiding what was really going on, they suppressed whistleblowers, they delayed releasing information, um, they're controlling the WHO, and they're very sensationalist. And I guess one thing that was surprising for me is that like, I don't necessarily assume that everything the US media is saying is wrong, but like when you actually look into it, all those things are either not true or they're a little distorted to the point where it's just like not recognizably the truth in any sense. Yeah, for me, I've kind of already realized that like what the US reports might be fair and accurate in some for some things. But like when it comes to China, it's almost always wrong, <laughs> or like super distorted and messed up. So yeah, I guess it's like if you don't already go in with that mindset, you're just you're just going to be really, really disappointed. I mean, I guess since you're a journalist, um, is this something that you noticed recently? I mean, because, well, you said you were surprised, but it's just like, did you feel like this wasn't the case, you know, say two years ago, even? I wouldn't really consider myself a journalist since I'm not breaking new information, but um, I consider myself more of a media critic. So I actually wanted to write about China for a very long time since I started writing mainly in 2019, I guess. But I just didn't mm -hmm. really have an opportunity to write about it until 2020. But then the whole pandemic happened. And I'm not happy it happened. But uh, it, was an <laughs> it was an opportunity to look at what people have been thinking about China for a while. And I was happy to do it since I think China is a subject that I don't think is very difficult to understand. I feel like it's more willfully misunderstood in some degree. But um, Yeah. No, I, I think that you hit upon a really um, salient point is that like you in the media, you keep seeing like, um, you know, like China or like Chinese people are just inscrutable, you know, like that kind of framing over and over again. Like there's some black box that you could not <laughs> possibly comprehend. Like where do you get, where do they get these ideas? I, I fucking hate it. It kind of reminds me of like, do you, do you know like computer science at all? Uh, I'm actually learning to code a little bit, but not very much, I guess. I guess there's like this um black box problem, I guess, in terms of you how people can't really understand how an AI works mm -hmm. is that like or maybe it's like the Chinese room problem. Yeah, that's what it's called. So it's like 
an AI is like somebody who's inside a room and then somebody feeds them Chinese characters Mm -hmm. through the door, through a hole in the door or like underneath the door. And then they are writing the Chinese characters Mm -hmm. and then there's a machine or something that like tells them what else to write or how to respond in Chinese. And then the person sends it back through the door, the response in Chinese, but it's like, they don't understand Chinese. They're just responding based on these certain instructions, but it's not like they comprehend the language. I see. And so that's like an analogy for like, like what does an AI actually know? Like it's like their processes are difficult to understand because we can't explain them, you know? So it's like kind of the inscrutability or the unexplainability of artificial intelligence Chinese is used as an analogy in that. Ah, I see. It like presupposes that Chinese is just like a foreign, completely mysterious language that nobody would be able to understand. <laughs> like a normal person, you know, like they call her Mary sometimes. Yeah. It's like like a Mary would just never be able to understand Chinese. Well, I guess for me, I had a bit of a learning curve since I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean. I, admittedly, growing up in the West, like everyone just inevitably grows up with very uh, negative or mysterious feelings about China. I feel mm-hmm. like for me, one thing, I feel like one thing that I've, I've always had growing up or was some principle, I guess like if you consider yourself more on the progressive end, you respect, you're at least supposed to respect the self-determination of peoples and you're supposed to prioritize what people mm-hmm. think of their government more than what we would think of their government. And mm-hmm. I think I also had certain negative opinions, but I think I'm the type of person who, even if I do have negative opinions about somebody or another country, I would at least like to know why I'm supposed to hate this place or people. And I guess I wanted to look into it. And I think one of the things that helped me understand China is by listening to actual Chinese people themselves and not the hand-picked Western, the selectively picked Western samples that Western journalists like to use, like who always, for some reason, magically happen to admire America and want China to be more like America. And <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you look at public opinion polls, like not just from domestic surveys within China, but like French and American polling agencies, you'll find that all of them very consistently show that Chinese people themselves like their government and trust their government. So like, how do Western journalists mm-hmm. just go around and magically find like, one or two people that just happen to be in the minority <laughs> to give their opinion. And it's just kind of funny that this is how it works and this is how they're selected and presented. Yeah. It's very, very agenda driven and not yeah. truth driven or like data driven. So, um, yeah. I think that's a really cool perspective and that one I don't usually hear because you're, you're not Chinese, but what was the process, you know, like, was there something, something that happens or, you know, like, what was the process of you going from a Korean American going about his day to <laughs> <laughs> like doing this, like uh, critical, these critical readings of the media, just really questioning everything, changing your whole belief about this thing and then going on and writing like really awesome articles about it. Thank you. Um, well, it's definitely not an easy process. It took 
me several years of understanding. I think ever since uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign. So I remember at the time I was in college and I remember reading this book by uh, Noam Chomsky at the time. He's like a very famous media critic, though I would say that Michael Parenti is an even better one. But uh, we don't need to get into that too deeply. Mm-hmm. But um, in, any, in any case, he talked about how uh, media have constantly distorted events throughout the world. When you read the book, you're just really astonished because you just never, you just don't hear any of this information. It's just, it just doesn't make it through the U.S. media filter. And it taught me to be more critical. And I think one thing that stuck with me from that Chomsky book I read, it was, it was called Understanding Power. He said to like not just take things on authority, like not just believe something because he says it or because the media says it, but to actually do your own investigation. And that's genuinely very hard. But um, I started doing it. I looked at how the media was covering Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, and I was just utterly shocked that like this guy who was saying very commonsensical things like we should build more schools and not prisons, we should focus more on climate change than Middle Eastern wars. And like he was just receiving like constant bashing by the media, and I was just like really shocked. It just didn't seem to match what it didn't seem to make any sense. And from there, I guess I started questioning like not just what goes on in America, but what goes on in other countries, like, for example, in the Middle East. And I guess media criticism, there are certain techniques, I guess, that we could get into later. But I guess for me, media criticism is more like a mindset. How do you, why do you believe certain things? How are things presented to you? And just to take one example, like last year in December, I think, or November, they published Afghanistan papers which revealed that the U.S. government has been totally lying about what was going on in Afghanistan to reporters. And I actually did two critiques of that series. I think the first one was about how the Washington Post has actually been spreading those lies themselves. So when they publish something like the Afghanistan papers, they're basically saying, hey, we've been lying to you this whole time, and now we're going to tell you what's really going on. (laughs) And the second part was um, how it's it's actually just colonial propaganda because they were just saying like, oh, we went in there with good intentions, but then we somehow unintentionally created this really corrupt U.S. puppet state in Afghanistan. Like, oh, it's like we just happened to do these things unintentionally, <laughs> purely, purely by accident. Yeah, like somehow this happened again for the 26th time in the last yeah, 30 years. And, uh, I think one thing I want to say about this is that like, Media criticism is more of a mindset. It's not like an arbitrary tool you apply to understand one country. If your understanding of how the media works is correct, then it should apply to every other country. For example, it's just really strange to say like, oh, like the media get it wrong on Afghanistan, but they somehow get everything right in China. <laughs> and that's just a very form of magical thinking to me. It's very arbitrary. It's not, it's not a very uh, consistent way of thinking. And if you're able to question what's going on in the Middle East, then why not question what's going on in Asia and other places around the world? So I guess it's a matter of consistency for me and having a coherent understanding of how the media works, because if you can get, if you can get it wrong in one area, there's no reason it can't get it wrong in another area. Yeah, for sure. I think you bring up a really interesting point, because I feel like for me, when I see liberals pushing back against racism or, you know, like questioning the government, they will only do it to a certain point. And when they get to China, it's just like, 
there's a wall there. Like they can't. Yes. And it's like, what, where does that come from? You know, like, how do you not have that? I guess it's, it's hard to explain. I guess I don't know. I know what you're talking about though. I think if you just say the word communism, people's brain just break. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like their their mind just shuts off and they just cannot comprehend or process like any counter information. Mm -hmm. Like that's a sign of how amazing the U.S. propaganda system works. You don't have to like communism. It's just a matter of like not having such a knee jerk reaction to like anything positive or contradictory to the U.S. narrative about it. I think I'm just a very eccentric person. I think when I encounter new information that contradicts what I previously believe and they give good evidence and arguments for it, I'm happy to be wrong. I don't want to believe another people is evil. I like knowing, oh, actually, they're better than I thought they were. That doesn't offend me. That makes me happy. But I guess some people, like, they have some kind of superiority complex where if they think that this supposedly inferior or evil society is actually not what they thought it was, they base their identity around hating this country or being superior, then Obviously, they're going to have a hard time processing that, but I guess I'm just a little eccentric in that department. I totally get that. And I think that a lot of people do like see it as a personal affront or something if you even bring up communism, right? Or like for a white American, if you bring up race in any way, they'll just like go and like they'll just freak out. And I'm wondering if it's maybe like the American identity in general. You know, because it's like, it's an identity that's based around anti-communism and it has been for at least the entire 20th century was built around that. So it's like, if you identify as an American, you can't identify with communism. You have to be anti-communist. And I'm wondering if maybe like, because you're Asian American, that has something to do or like maybe a person of color or something, or just like feeling slightly outside of Americanism that maybe you have a different perspective or like a less biased perspective. I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas out there. I'm sure that is the case for some people, but I think uh, it's not the case for me though. I do think that like, if you were to reframe some things uh, in a different way, like people might, be able to better understand another person's perspective. For example, like just during the Korean War, it was fought in the 1950s. Back then, uh, America did not really give people of color the right to participate fully in politics. How can they say that they want to give democracy to Koreans if they don't even have that at home at the time? And how can they say that they're doing it for Korean people when you can read accounts by American soldiers they're really racist. They thought we were dogs and they wanted to kill Koreans. They didn't really feel any remorse over it. How does helping Korean Korea work by murdering millions of Koreans work? It doesn't really make any sense if you think about it like that. But uh, I guess that's a topic that's a little touchy and not too germane to this current conversation, I guess. It doesn't have to be not germane. And, you know, like, go for it. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think that applies in my case. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever you're drinking, keep drinking it. (laughs) Share your (laughs) Kool-Aid. Do you feel like you, like, why did you specifically get interested in uh, China coverage? I guess most of my friends are Chinese, or not most, but a lot of my friends are Chinese. And I've never really had a bad experience of Chinese people in America. So I guess I was just curious. And China and Korea are neighbors. We have a shared history. Just more in that regard, I do think that 
one thing Americans in particular have a duty to do is to prevent war from occurring. And I do think the current Cold War escalation with China by America, it's a very one-sided thing. It's not mutual. I think that's something that Americans should oppose. And I do think that like one of the necessary things for war is to convince the population that your enemy is evil and they need to be stopped at all costs. And I do think that um, countering the media narrative in that regard is a necessary thing to do. I didn't really make it my mission to do these things, but I guess it just sort of happened like that. I don't really know many writers who are, at least not that I know of, in progressive media trying to push back against American lies about China. So I guess I figured I should do it. And I didn't really set out trying to prove that China is innocent of all the charges that American media accuses it of. Like, that's not my method. Like, I don't assume anybody's innocent. My methodology that I use for, for understanding every country is just to look at specifically Western accusations and see if there's any evidence behind it. And it turns out pretty much almost every step of the way, they get everything wrong. And I was surprised <laughs> that like, literally everything they get is just straight up wrong. Yeah. If you have any specific questions, we could get into that. But um, yeah. Do you want to just like uh, jump into your articles? Sure. We can go through each of them that you want to talk about. And you can talk about like the specific points you raised and like how you, how you got there. Sure. If you've been keeping up with media coverage in America and that's all you've been consuming, I guess your timeline of events would sort of be something like Dr. Li Wenliang was a whistleblower who tried to inform the whole world that SARS coronavirus, the new virus was here. He tried to tell the world, but he was silenced and arrested by Chinese authorities who wanted to hide the virus because for who knows, like various reasons, people can just make them up, I guess, if they want. But they're like that. And because of this, uh, America and other Western nations were just helpless because China hid all the information. There's nothing they could have done differently because China hid all the information. You could just blame China for everything. I actually looked at that story at the time. Like, I remember being very confused, like, oh, like, damn, this seems pretty damning. And like, I, I don't know what to do with this. So one thing I like to do, or one method of research that I like to do that helps me think about things or that may think about things helps people think about things is to uh, look for the exact narrative. So for example, if the common narrative is Dr. Li Wenliang was a whistleblower who tried to hide, who tried to tell people about coronavirus, but then was stopped by the government, like if there's a persistent theme, just search for the opposite argument. Actually, no, China didn't hide anything. And I was a little shocked by it. So to give some context of what actually happened, Dr. Li Wenliang got some, somehow got a text message and the word SARS was circled. I guess he wanted to warn his classmates about it. I mean, which is a very reasonable thing to do. And he texted them in a private WeChat group, like with seven other colleagues. And he said like, oh, like, be careful. This might be SARS. And I want you to like wear like protective gear and like prevent yourself from getting infected, which is a very reasonable thing to do. I think anyone, if anyone had that kind of information, they would surely try to do that for their friends. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, like there's nothing wrong with that. He actually told them not to share that information with anybody else, though. So a whistleblower in the more traditional sense, like Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning, would be trying to alert public authorities, newspapers, the general public in general about like certain wrongdoing. But that's not really what he was doing. Um, he told them in a private WeChat group to like take care of themselves and be careful. And he told them specifically not to share this information with anybody else. 
Yeah, to not alarm the public. At the time, it was not clear what was going on or like what the infection actually was. So like, it's actually also bad if you just sound the alarm way too early and say, it's SARS again. And then everybody is freaking out and they don't know what to do. And there's just mass hysteria. Yeah, he did that. And after he shared the text message on December 30th, one of the people in that group leaked it to the public on December 31. Because of that, he and his other colleagues were asked and questioned by authorities. He was never arrested. They were never arrested. But they were asked not to spread rumors on January 3. Like To the average person, like I don't blame them for thinking that like China was trying to hide things. But that's not... You have to look a little deeper within the surface, beneath the surface, to see what's going on. Right. And they were local officials, too, who questioned him, yeah. right? It wasn't like the CCP. It wasn't like Xi Jinping, <laughs> you know, like, wrestled him <laughs> and put him in jail. It was like these local officials who were worried about, like, a mass panic or something. It would, like, look bad for them and their bosses or, like, their, you know, like, national level higher-ups if something terrible happened under their watch. And so it was more like a middle management kind of dealing with somebody than some sort of national Chinese conspiracy. Yeah. Conspiracy. Yeah. Xi Jinping wasn't like, you must never tell anybody about this. Like, <laughs> like that's not what happened. But, <laughs> but um, in any case, I think um, one thing that people don't really, really know too much is that um, Dr. Li Wenyang was not the first doctor to share this information. And he wasn't even ahead of the Chinese government. One thing that many Americans are not aware of is that uh, Dr. Zhang Shishan, I don't, I'm not Chinese, so I might be butchering a lot of Chinese names in this. I'm sorry. But, um, oh, no worries. But um, Dr. Zhang, Dr. Zhang Shishan was the first doctor. And I believe she reported it to health authorities on December 27, which is a whole three days before Dr. Li Wenyang. It traveled up the chain of command, and the Wuhan municipality released an announcement on December 30 and December 31. And if you keep in mind the timeline, Dr. Li Wenyang shared that text message on December 30th, and it was leaked on December 31. So basically, during those two days, they, all, they literally already made an announcement. One thing that I think Western journalists are very lazy to do is just to like research basic facts. So for example... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Just, just for example. I mean, I'm glad you're staying, but it's just so hilarious. Yeah. So um, <laughs> this is pretty funny for me too. So one thing that would like be very crucial to know like or confirm is like if it is true that China tried to hide it and that Dr. Li Wenliang was silenced and because he was silenced, no one else could ever know anything like ever, you could just simply Google like, like Wuhan pneumonia, December 31, 2019. I, that's all I did. Like Wuhan pneumonia... December 31, 2019, and just see what's, what shows up. And you got like at least, I mean, I stopped at seven sources because I got bored, but um, like I'm sure there are other references, but um, you have people mm -hmm. like Reuters, Associated Press, Japan Times, The Who, and some other places like University of Minnesota or something. And they all like published reports on December 31. And Dr. Lee Wenyang was, uh. was asked to come in on January 3. So the world pretty much already knew about this Wuhan pneumonia outbreak. Wow. All you have to do is a simple Google search and you could get like at least seven different results telling you contemporaneous reports at the time on December 31 that like there was a Wuhan pneumonia outbreak. 
And Dr. Li Weiyang wasn't really bringing any new information. Just going beyond that, though, like it's not really his fault. Like he wasn't a virologist or epidemiologist. He was an ophthalmologist, which is more to do with the eyes. Yeah. He didn't really know. Like he wasn't treating these patients. He just got a text message that I think started from Dr. Ai Fen. But that's not too important at the moment. In any case, he the word SARS was circled. And that's actually very important because if he actually managed to spread that information or want if that information got too public, he would actually be, be misleading the public because COVID-19 is not SARS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do think one very important thing that people should know about the difference between SARS and COVID-19 is that um, COVID-19 has asymptomatic transmission, which means that like in the incubation period, which is the period when you're infected before you start showing symptoms, you could actually still infect other people. But SARS, there was no um, asymptomatic, there was very little asymptomatic transmission. So meaning if the public were to think it was SARS, they would not worry about like being in contact with people who are not showing symptoms. And that would, that would just spread a lot if they did that. So it was actually a good thing that it was not allowed to spread that it was SARS. Yeah. So, I mean, the virus is called SARS-2 or SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the virus that causes corona- COVID-19. Yeah. But, um, SARS, the SARS virus is SARS, like SARS-CoV-1 or something like that. So mm-hmm. if he got a text message that was saying it's a SARS virus, then I can see why he would be like, oh, it's, it, it could be SARS. We don't really know. Yeah. So, I mean, like the link there at the time, I mean, it was understandable. It wasn't like he was trying to spread misinformation either but it's just like like he's not a virologist he's not gonna know this stuff yeah yeah like he's he's a perfectly honorable man what he did was what any good person should do and i believe china the chinese government um revoked their rebuke of him and i think they elevated him to martyr status if i'm not mistaken which is considered to be a very high honor yeah yeah and like, it's just really annoying to see Western media like take this man who is a perfectly good person and who did a very reasonable thing and make him out to be like something he really wasn't in order to create some narrative against China. Yeah. I think the thing that surprises me the most is that like the Western media actually already reported the disease outbreak on December 30th. And the reports now are saying, oh no, there, it was like a complete cover up. <laughs> It's so secret that we even forgot our own reporting. Yeah, it's it's wild. Looking back on your method of just saying like, okay, let's suppose that this is true. Like, well, if it's true, we can just search what it isn't. And if we can find that, then this claim is wrong. I mean, that's just the scientific method. <laughs> that's testing the null hypothesis. That's all you're doing. Yeah, it's not it's not some crazy scheme that you have to go to graduate school to like no. or like journalism school to find out. It's literally like what is it? Uh look at what it isn't and it's not even hard to do this research. You just google it. Yeah. It's not there's no there's no real secret. There's like no like secret technique that like you have to go to some secret school to like learn. It's just just look at it, look at a major claim and if it's constantly repeated, try looking for the opposite. Sometimes it, it is true. You don't need to change it. You don't need to change your mind. But sometimes it isn't true. And in this case, it isn't true. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's no secret. There's no like secret method behind it. 
But it is helpful to search for the opposite narrative sometimes because I do remember seeing a lot of like racist coverage about like uh, Chinese wet markets being the source of the COVID-19 outbreak. Oh, Chinese people are dirty. Like, oh, look at what they do. They spill all their blood and water everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm exaggerating a little bit, but um, like it's just really cartoonish. Sometimes like you look at these sensationalist images of like roasted dogs or like something like that. And like, then you start wondering like, wait a minute, are these pictures like even in China? Like, and like, it turns out that sometimes these images, like they're not even in China, they're in like other Asian countries. So like, what the hell does this have to do with coronavirus? Right. I remember that like all these photos of like some market that was like roasting, I don't know, rats or something. And it was, it was in some other place and it wasn't even recent. It was like from 10 years ago or something. Yeah. So for, to do research on that article, like I don't assume everything in Western media is a, is a lie. I don't do that. I don't do that. But like, it's, I mean, you just, you should just test it out. And I just Googled the exact opposite argument. Like, no, wet markets are not the cause of COVID-19. And then you, you right. get some sort of interesting arguments about that but in any case the wet market hypothesis is not taken seriously anymore but um i do think that like one thing people may not know many westerners may not know is that there is a difference between wet markets and wildlife markets wet markets is not necessarily a a place where like anything just anything can be sold and to just call all west chinese wet markets which could just be similar if you if westerners want an analog you could just think of it as a farmer's market like it's not like anything uniquely especially chinese or anything like that some people think mm-hmm. it is right and, um, sometimes it's helpful to just just search for the opposite argument and it may or may not be true but in this case with the western media was very misleading when it came to what chinese wet markets actually are and whether it actually originated from there so I've also heard people say that like, oh, yes, you know, the mar- wet market in Wuhan, that was nominally a seafood market, but there's like stuff going on under the table, you know, behind the scenes where if you knew who to talk to, like you could get a ton of wildlife from that market. Like they were operating like a secondary wildlife market at the market or mm-hmm. something like that. I haven't seen reports on it, but those are the kinds of rumors mm-hmm. that I've heard, like in in the West, and those are sometimes spread by like Chinese Americans who are like, "Oh, see, but I I'm in the know because I'm Chinese, you know," and like they're the ones who are spreading those rumors. Maybe not necessarily based on their knowledge of that specific market in Wuhan, but based on like their overall knowledge of like being in China or like you know like being Chinese or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, that's different from media reporting, but I feel like that sort of thing happens too. And it kind of creates this system where the public, including journalists, are just like suspicious. You know, it adds to their racist suspicions and like the yellow peril fears. Let let me ask you, like, let's say that you test out the opposite hypothesis, the opposite narrative, and you get a ton of reports on that too one of them is definitely wrong right or like maybe both of them aren't really telling the real story how do you navigate that environment what if there's two competing narratives that are both you know things that you as an individual couldn't check out for yourself but there's like multiple there's two narratives 
one that says something terrible is happening and one that says something like nothing is actually happening? I mean, I don't want to give any easy answers because like every situation is just really different and life is complex. And sometimes there may not even be two narratives, but maybe like three or five. I guess one thing that I do in particular, so my methodology is not to assume that any country is innocent. My specific work as a media critic is just to look at Western media reports and what they're accusing another country of doing or what is going on in another country. And some of them may be true. Some of them are not true. It, it really is a case-by-case basis. And what I really do is just look at specific accusations made against another country and see if Western governments provide any proof of it. Just to go back to COVID, they accused Dr. Li Wenyang of covering up information. It is, ver- is a lot more easily, easily verifiable, even if you're not there. In some other cases, you really have little to go by except on what Western sources, for example, what Western media may tell you about another country, and just look at their accusations to see if they substantiate them. One trend that people should notice very easily that I'm about to mention is the use of anonymous sources. If you see the words like officials say or intelligence officials tell us, operatives, but like without giving a name as to who these people are, there's a decent chance that's just pure bullshit and you don't need to pay any attention to it. And the reason why anonymous sources in particular is considered very bad practice or bad form in journalism is that essentially, if they are not telling the truth, they can get away with lying to the public and spreading a narrative that they want to spread, even if there's no evidence of it, and they suffer no consequences. And I think one of the more notorious examples of that is uh, Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. A lot of that was based on anonymous sources. If they were to just remain anonymous... Like maybe how do you know that the same architects behind the Iraq war are not just spreading another lie and another report like years down the line, like journalists only to question their credibility because they were never revealed. They were never embarrassed. That's why it's really bad to use anonymous sources. I haven't done a quantification. There's no, I don't know of any quantitative studies like documenting the use of anonymous sources in Western media, but I feel like recently there's been just a flood of reports just based entirely on anonymous sources that are just totally false or like just not, not provable. And it's just like, how can you possibly believe this? Um, just. Do you mean about China coverage specifically or everything? Like I said earlier, like this does apply to China, but it also applies to plenty of other countries since Western propagandists are very effective and they know what they're doing. They use the same techniques I don't want to say they use every technique identically, but like they have a lot of similar approaches to any country the Western governments want to demonize. Yeah. I mean, you do see this throughout history too. It's not even just a recent thing, but we can talk about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, before the mm-hmm. Vietnam War, it was the Gulf of Tonkin. And there was also like false reports about a ship being bombed in the Philippines that started the Spanish-American War in like the late 19th century too. The journalism back then, that was called yellow journalism because (laughs) it was false and sensational. And like the same shit keeps happening over and over again. We still believe what we read. Like why? (laughs) Like, do we not have historical memory? Does the American public not have that historical memory? And like, You know, like even with the weapons of mass destruction, I think a lot of people 
we'll say like, yeah, like that was a lie. That was uncovered as a lie um, Mm -hmm. a few years after. But we think about that and we say, okay, well, that, that was terrible. And we don't apply what we learn from that to other situations. I mean, I guess I have my guesses. I feel like a lot of people just don't really go through life saying like, oh, everyone in my government's a liar. And like, um, oh, like all these newspapers, all they're saying is false. And like, well, I guess if you're a Trump supporter, or maybe you could believe that. (laughs) um, (laughs) I don't know. These people just live in some alternate universe. But anyways, I don't think most people go through life thinking that like, there's a systematic campaign to lie to the American public. I think people think, oh, like my ordinary neighbor would never do that to me. And like, oh, I like... These politicians are just normal people. They would never do things like that. <laughs> but I'm saying that maybe they should think that way because it keeps happening over and over again. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just don't think um, these things are very looked into very carefully by most of the public, unfortunately. Like, why is that? <laughs> I mean, like, we have one of the best educational systems in the world, supposedly. What is what is missing here? Because I feel like most of the Chinese people I know, their first instinct is to question the propaganda of the CCP and to investigate for themselves what is happening in the world or like, you know, in the reports around them. It's like verify with people that they know or to, you know, like try to seek other sources. Like, why isn't that kind of critical analysis and just like even the critical thinking there um, for the American public? Oh, this is a this is a very um, interesting question because I feel like a lot of my work deals with this very topic. <laughs> I'm really glad that we can talk about this because I've all I've been asking myself this for a while. So um, I think I would say is that one thing people may not realize is that like they think that because a lot of journalists are employed by corporations and not by the government, that there must be some sort of independence between them. They think, oh, like you're working for Comcast or um, Time Warners. Like you're not working for the US government. So like they're not necessarily thinking that you're just a state propagandist or that these people are state propagandists. Right. Michael Parenti talks about it in his book from the eighties, you know, like it's not new information either. Yeah. So they're not really aware of how the American propaganda system works. So for example, um, the issue of censorship, I think when people think of the word censorship, they think of it as something that happens post publication, like you publish an article, but then it gets taken down by like a social media company or by the government or whatever you want to think about it. And that is a form of censorship. But I think um, how censorship works in America is more what happens pre publication. Like what are you allowed to print? Like, not even, like, after you print it, like, will it be, like, able to show up on other people's news feeds or television screens or whatever? And I think certain ideas are just not allowed to be printed or published or some perspectives are just not allowed in. So I think because it happens pre-publication, people don't really notice that, like, there's a lot of censorship going on. So would you call that more like a cultural censorship Uh, or like a social censorship? So I think... One thing that FAIR does is that um, uh, the publication I write for a lot, they look at how corporate ownership of the news influences coverage. So for example, um, just to cite my own work, because I'm a total narcissist, I'll look at like why corporate media coverage of Bernie Sanders was really bad. I think one thing that helps people understand how corporate media works is um, 
just by thinking of it as a corporation like any like not it's not a special business it's not a unique business it's just a corporation like any other corporation there's a set hierarchy with business executives at the top shareholders and middle management and whatnot and i think one thing many people mistakenly do is that they blame the journalists for like bad coverage but like they're essentially either told what to write or even if they want to write something the editors have the final say over what gets published or not and if they don't like what you write they could just spike spike your article or they could just delete. What does that mean, spike your article? They just don't publish it. Like you write, they just don't run it. Or they could just delete or rephrase some things that they don't like. That's what I would call like pre-publication censorship. I looked at, for example, like why does corporate media hate Bernie Sanders during his primary campaign? I think if it is, if this understanding of corporate media is correct then one thing you might want to look at is like, does Sanders have policy proposals that would hurt these media corporations' profits? And it turns out he did. Mm -hmm. If you look at his media plan in the Columbia Journalism Review, for example, he talked about how a small handful of companies control everything Americans watch, read, and download. And he said that he wants to break up these oligopolies and he wants to tax them to like fund nonprofit sources of journalism Obviously, like corporations don't like being taxed and they don't like being told that like they're too big. So if this makes sense, then obviously Bernie Sanders is going to be attacked. I think MSNBC and CNN in particular have been especially vicious about it. MSNBC is owned by Comcast. CNN is owned by AT&T. I think if Americans were to stop calling MSNBC MSNBC and just call them Comcast or call CNN AT&T, then it might be a little bit more easier to understand if these outlets have an agenda. And if Bernie Sanders was saying, I want to tax MSNBC and AT&T, and then you look at AT&T and Comcast-owned websites or publications or outlets, you could, you could basically predict that they're going to attack Bernie Sanders, which is exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. So you could test this understanding of corporate media and look at it yourself if one wants to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I know this isn't the typical definition of censorship, but I feel like it's not just about what you don't say. It's about what is said. And I feel like a lot of times maybe editors or like higher ups, they'll put ideas into an article that wasn't there before. And it's pretty obvious to me because I do a lot of editing, Mm -hmm. but sometimes I will notice you know, like, for example, I read this New York Times article about the U.S.'s poor handling of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And then there will be like three or four instances throughout the article, maybe more, where somebody like it'll be inserted like the U.S.'s media coverage was like terrible at the beginning comma, but not as bad as China's comma or something, (laughs) or like the US suppressed, you know, information about COVID-19, but China, or like, but China did it first. And that's why we're in this situation, (laughs) you know, and it's like, it's clear to me that like, the person who actually is the author of this article was framing it in like a way that would criticize the American government. But then the editors inserted all these like anti-China things. The author was probably just like, whatever, you know, or like doesn't even know about it or 
it was, I think it was an opinion piece, right? So they're probably just happy that it got published in the New York Times mm -hmm. and they didn't care that all this stuff is sprinkled in because they're, you know, they probably agree with it too. And it's, they felt like it was more important to put what they wrote out there than to quibble over every little thing. But I noticed this quite often, like the New York Times does this a lot. I don't know who else. I can't think of another example, but I like I see it. It's very apparent. And it's a kind of like not censorship, but it's almost like inception, <laughs> you know, because it's not like preventing you from accessing this information. It's putting these ideas into your head in like little ways into everything. And it's also, and that I think it also is different from like just having agenda driven propaganda pieces themselves. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I, I don't work at the times or outlets like that. So I, I don't really know what's fully going on behind the scenes, but if that were to happen, that wouldn't really surprise me. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not saying you, you would know yeah. that, but I just like, that's something that I thought of as we were talking, because that's like a third different way of inserting propaganda. Yeah, it really is. I think a problem is that Americans assume the best, the best intentions, the best quality of work mm -hmm. into what goes into what they consume. And it's just not true. Yeah. They don't know how the sausage is made. And if they went to the butcher shop, maybe they'd see that they're like, this dude is grinding up people and putting it in their sausages. You know, it's like that same thing of just like too much trust in your government or in corporations or whoever is higher up. That's not very acknowledged here. We feel like, oh, we're cynics. We get what's going on. But like, oh, most of us do not. We don't question enough. And we don't question the right things. I mean, unfortunately, that is very true. I do think in America in particular, we are indoctrinated with this uh, notion of American exceptionalism. America is the greatest nation ever. Does nothing wrong. Like, if we do things wrong, we did it with the best of intentions. <laughs> right. And uh, it's an unfalsifiable thesis. Like, okay, like, if you want to bring up a bad thing America did, like the Vietnam invasion, for example, like, they're like, Oh, yeah, like we killed a few Vietnamese, a couple million Vietnamese people, but like we did it with the best of intentions. <laughs> it's like you could give up anything, you could give them anything, and like they'll just hit you, they'll just hit you back with, oh no, but we mean well. So like it's totally fine. Yeah. Like, we're like a gentle giant. We don't know what we're doing. We just accidentally crush a few ants along the way. <laughs> and yeah, about a million ants like every decade or so. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's generally how it's portrayed. But I do think that in general, many citizens of any country, not just America, they never really question whether, wait a minute, what if we're the bad guys? I don't really see many politicians or Western media outlets in particular say like, oh, like what if America is the bad guy in the Cold War? It may or may not be true, but like if you had a free debate, wouldn't that be up for debate? Like what if we're the bad guys? You got to test the null hypothesis. Yeah. I think one thing that Noam Chomsky says is that like you can debate things. If you look like you're having a lively debate, people won't notice that a debate really isn't being had. So for example, they could say like America's uh, invasions of other countries are great. And then the opposite point of view, it's not really the opposite point of view, but another point of view would be like, oh, like America means well, but like this is not good for our interests. Like this is not very tactical. And, like You could raise a tactical critique, but you can't say – 
the invasion itself is wrong. Right. And I think that goes to who gets to frame the debate in the first place, who gets to ask that initiating question. Because like with the presidential debates too, you know, it's not, is China bad and we're good? That's never in debate. It's who's tougher on China. Yes. Right? Like it presupposes that China is already the enemy. And so Mm -hmm. if you have that framing to begin with, how do you even counter that? That's not even up for debate. So it's like, who gets to decide that? And that's the same people that run the media. So we're kind of in a bind. Yeah. um, I do think one thing I would recommend to people in general is that like, it is literally impossible for one individual to like tackle everything all on their own. It's not possible. And it's not even efficient, even if you could do it. And I think one thing I would recommend is people to do is to, uh, join social media communities that would tell you a very different point of view. So for example, when I was doing research on China coronavirus articles that I was doing, one thing I would I specifically tried to look for is social media communities that would give the exact opposite argument. For example, like if American media is just debating about who's tougher on China, why not look for social media communities that have the opposite point of view like China's actually not an evil country and look for communities that would most likely disagree with that. So there are certain Reddit subreddits. Uh, I don't think I should mention them here because they might get shut down. (laughs) I'm afraid (laughs) to mention that. (laughs) But um, there are certain Reddit subreddit communities that would like, they share a lot of info with each other. They would like do like real time, like media criticism and like, oh, like, thanks guys. Like I'm going to borrow things you guys are saying, not plagiarize, but like I'm going to look at some, some of the information you're sharing and investigate it and see if it's relevant or not, or if it's true or not. So you could join certain subreddits or Facebook groups, or just follow a bunch of people on Twitter who have particular points of view that is not necessarily the mainstream. That saves you a lot of effort. It lets you like find out about it. And I do think that like for many people in general in America, one sad thing is that um, many people are not really very curious. They are not very uh, questioning. That's not to say that they're unintelligent or whatnot. It's just that... Uh, that's just not how most people are. So I do think that like one thing that people could do to uh, mitigate that factor is just to join other social media communities that offer a very different point of view. That's what I do for my own research, I guess. That's really awesome advice. Maybe another thing kind of similar to what you're saying is if you want to spread, like once you've done the research or like you found something don't just share it with your pre-existing groups. Join a group with the opposite viewpoint that you have and like share your knowledge with them to just kind of like seed more discourse. I mean, I it takes a lot of emotional labor to do that. Um, so I don't necessarily recommend everybody do that. But it's like if you can find somebody who disagrees, like sharing your information might lead them to change their minds or to just to just question yeah you know just like to start that process of just like asking questions more and thinking more critically i think that helps more than saying no i'm right and like trying to argue your point is to just share that information i mean i think that's very great advice I think I tried to do that to some limited success. (laughs) But but, um, like like you said, it is genuinely very challenging. And um, I mean, for the most part, 
I don't really think like this is a negative character trait, but I just don't think most people constantly question like, wait a minute, what if my beliefs are majorly wrong? I think I remember seeing some survey, I forgot who it was by Gallup or Pew or something. And like, they're talking about how Americans are worried about misinformation, but like, they're not worried about misinformation that they're getting. They're worried about other people's misinformation. Right. Yeah. It's like, their assumptions like, oh, like I got everything right. It's those other people that need to work on it. And like, maybe that's true, but maybe you're the one who is getting a lot of poisoned information. And maybe you should check your own biases or whatever. But that is like genuinely very hard. I do know that there is such a thing as a motivated reasoning where like you're more likely to accept information as true if they already agree with what you previously thought. And if information that directly clashes what you with what you already think, you're less likely to accept it. You'll start questioning. Like, for example, like I remember there are some people who might think like, oh, like Chinese people are oppressed. They all hate their government. They want to like destroy everything. <laughs> <laughs> And like, if you show them like like public opinion polls showing that like actually most pe- Chinese people like and trust their government, their mind just like shuts down and like they don't. This is just a thing, right? And these are polls that are given by Western media outlets. They're not like government, like Chinese government polls or something. I do think one important thing to mention though is that like maybe it is true that the Chinese government like manipulates polls. But like the people who say that never, ever give any proof. They just say, oh, the Chinese government did, therefore it must be a lie. But like, okay, so if you're making that accusation, prove it. Can you prove it? And like nine times, 99 times out of 100, like I bet they can't prove it. Like they just, that's just what they already think. So they just say, oh, like because the Chinese government did, it must be a lie. Right, yeah. But like they can't prove that though. But in any case, like let's just say you just take that exact assumption for granted and just look at like Western polling agencies that look at this and they come to the exact same conclusion. Are they all being lied to? And if it is true that the Chinese government bans like disapproval of it and like would punish people who disagree, then why did, for example, if one poll says like 80% of Chinese people like support the government, and if that's true, then how did 20% of people manage to disagree? Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It would be 100% or like nothing. Yeah, it would be 100% if that's really true or like close to that, but like it's not true. So I do know that there is such a thing as like motivated reasoning and I don't think that's like a negative character trait of people in general. I just think that's a very human thing. Everybody likes to think that they're telling the truth and it's hard. And I, I admit that I'm not immune to it, but it's just a thing that we all need to work on. I think one thing I would say that that's not really, really talked about is that like, I do think that if one wants to learn the truth about any topic, there's like a certain school of thought where like, if you just give people information, they'll just change their mind. Unfortunately, that's not true. Sometimes like mm-hmm. their brain just shuts it out or like pushes it out. That happens to everybody, including myself. Yeah, yeah, but, um, definitely. I do think that if one wants to like know the truth, one needs to have a certain character or humility, like being willing to admit that you're wrong about things. That doesn't come easily to many people. It's a character trait that people need to develop over time. Like, hey, if I'm wrong about this, then I might be wrong about another thing. It really is something that like you need to cultivate within yourself. That sounds like very like corny advice but like i think it is true like people only a certain type of person is capable of like learning things and the people who are most capable are those who are willing to admit that they might be wrong about things and if people don't are not willing to think that then that's just how it is that's definitely true a lot of the people who would believe negative stuff about china they would consider themselves humanitarians and that's why they care about china but it's like You need to learn how to identify disinformation and to check your sources 
you know, to like think critically the way that uh, Josh, you're describing, because when you don't do that and you believe the reports, that leads to a lot of human loss, you know, that leads to genocide that led to the war in Iraq, killing a million Iraqis, a lot of whom were children. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not, that's like the opposite of a humanitarian. So it's like, if you are not going to question these things and you're just going to like believe that you're doing the right thing, that you're the humanitarian in this, like you're not liberating people. A lot of times the intervention that you want to use to liberate people is just going to end up killing a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, we call those people liberal imperialists. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. I'm going to use that. And, um, that, that is a thing. I think um, one thing that I've heard, uh, I think a journalist in the Global South, I'm not the first one to think of the Western media like this, but um, this is an extreme characterization. But in some cases, you could accurately describe um, Western media as a sort of like online or print lynch mob. What do you mean by that? They deal with like the character assassination of governments or countries you want to invade or destroy or break up. They do that. And like sometimes it does lead to literal death, like in Libya um, there was a fake story about Muammar Gaddafi like giving his soldiers Viagra so they could commit mass rape. Wow, it's just like so stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's how, ridiculous. how could anyone possibly believe that, right? <laughs> Viagra doesn't cause rape. <laughs> <laughs> that just gives me a boner for like four hours. I, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't know. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, the whole premise is so stupid. <laughs> I mean, it is stupid, but like. If people have this baseline assumption that Western journalists are independent of Western governments and that they're not their puppets, then they're more likely to believe they're just doing their job and they have an honest humanitarian motive. Well, in some cases, like it's not just about like how they discuss things, but how often they mention things. So for example, I did a study of like um, how often Western media discuss Hong Kong protesters as opposed to uh, what's going on in Palestine or Puerto Rico. Uh, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or even Paris. There's an interesting study that I did. I looked at like during the period of when the national security law was passed in Hong Kong, how often they discussed other places. So for example, in Hong Kong, zero people were killed by police, although the protests have been going on for a while. I do think police brutality in some cases has occurred. So I'm not going to deny that. But if you just want to look at quantification, zero people were killed by the police. Mm-hmm. And like they would call like Hong Kong like a Chinese colony or whatever. Then you could look at okay, like so one thing you could ask yourself is um, okay, so if Western media is accusing China of having colonies, West do Western countries have colonies? Do does America have colonies? And you could look at Puerto Rico, for instance. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, at least four people were killed by uh, police there. There's that. So four people is more than zero. But how much coverage does Puerto Rico get? as opposed to Hong Kong. You can look at Israel and Palestine because uh, Israel's built building settlements on Palestinian land. And like you could talk about how often they talk about it, for instance. I believe in 2019, Israel uh, security forces killed around 150 people in Palestine. So 150 people is a lot more than zero, but how often does Western media talk about it? Mm-hmm. I did a study of a one-month period. And during this one month, there were six articles on Puerto Rico. 12 on Israel and Palestine, and around 113 for Hong Kong. So it's not just how, how it's discussed, but how often it's discussed that shapes a certain narrative. So like, if zero people were killed in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. 
But then you see like 113 articles from the New York Times, CNN, and Wall Street Journal, like talking about Chinese brutality. What's the narrative that's going to get settled in your head? They've killed zero people. I'm not saying that the Hong Kong police are perfect, but the fact is they've killed zero people since the protest started. And in Israel, they mm-hmm. killed around 150. And in Puerto Rico, they killed at least four. But like, why does one area get so much coverage than another? I do think like that's part of what Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman called worthy and unworthy victims. So you're a worthy victim. Like you, people, we have to mourn if people are abused by a country the United States government considers its enemy. But if they are victims of what we do, or what Americans do, or what American allies do, then they're unworthy victims. They're not worthy of coverage. Uh, you don't need to cover them. They're, they don't matter. Yeah, not even in terms of brutality, how many people died, but just in terms of neglect. How many people died after the hurricane in Puerto Rico? Do they I don't even know if they have electricity still because like I haven't read anything on that. If you if you're looking something up, like definitely let me know, but it was like 3,000 people had died from just like like the government not doing anything to clean up after the devastation or like sending like a piddling amount of support after the hurricanes. You know, let, like let's talk about Xinjiang and like the Uyghurs or whatever. It's like, even if they are, there's like a million people in concentration camps, they're not dead. And just the fact that China has been able to contain coronavirus so well means that all of those Uyghurs are surviving you know, meanwhile, like just the average POC, like working class person is in much greater danger of death in the US because of all the neglect that the US, like they, they just haven't done anything for, for us. A thousand people a day are dying. How are we still focused on all this other shit that's happening in China? Like, holy shit, a thousand people a day. Yeah, there is a lot of controversy over what's going on in Xinjiang. I guess since I haven't been there, I'd want to I'd want to make too like confident of an assertion about what's going on there. Well, I can tell you that there's not a thousand people a day dying there. Yes, no, I, I believe that. I I do think that's true. Um, I think I do think that like one thing you could do to question one thing someone could do to question the credibility or the supposed concern that American journalists have for Uyghur Muslims is to ask about the over a million. Muslims killed by America in the Middle East and it's all its wars throughout Iraq, Afghanistan, and just around the region in general. And just for the sake of argument, I think the journalist Caitlin Johnstone made this argument, like, let's just suppose everything you hear from Western media about China and Xinjiang is true. Let's just suppose it is true. Why does this get more condemnation than what America does in the Middle East, where you actually kill people and literally displace tens of millions of peoples throughout the world? throughout the Middle East and create a refugee crisis? Like, why does that get more attention than what we do? I think if you start asking that question, then someone will realize, wait a minute, Western journalists, do they really care about Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang? Like, or are they just saying this because it's convenient for a certain narrative? Well, I think the, like a lot of people, when they hear that, they'll just say, well, that's whataboutism. Like, it doesn't matter that we do the same stuff or worse it doesn't excuse, you know, China's crimes, stuff like that. I guess you could say that, but like, that's not relevant because the argument is not that like, because America does this, therefore everything that goes on in China is okay. That's not the point. The question is, 
we're talking about the credibility of Western journalists. We're not talking about like whether what's going on in China is okay. We're just solely sticking to the topic of the credibility of American journalists. If American journalists really do have this concern for what happens to Muslims, why don't they condemn what America does since they have the most influence over what Americans do? Like, for example, if, if Western narratives of China being a totalitarian society that doesn't care what people think is true, then why would you bother wasting time criticizing China? They don't care about what you think. Just criticize America because they supposedly care more about what we think. The question is not about what aboutism because like what aboutism is more like, oh, like because America does this, therefore like what China does is okay. Like, that's, not, that's not the argument. The argument is if Americans don't care about their own actions, why should we believe that they care about what's going on in China? And like if they're willing to lie about what they do in Afghanistan, why wouldn't they be lying about China? They could be telling the truth about China, but like, how do we know that? Can you automatically assume that they're telling the truth? That's the question we're asking. Like, are they credible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Where do we go from here? You know, it's it's a lot. How do you fight something like this? The narratives and the media is produced by people with a lot of money and a lot of power. I mean, you're doing a lot of work and that's awesome. But it's like, it seems like sometimes when I think about the stuff that is happening in the world, I just feel very sad. Like, how do you, how do you even counter the narrative? It just seems really difficult to even be able to convince one person that this is untrue, if even that. How do you, how do you change it? Because it seems like you're fighting an avalanche. Um, well, I mean... 